0: Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. Before I introduce the guest for today, I'd just like to take a moment to encourage you to leave a rating or review for the show. If you enjoy listening or have found the show beneficial, you can really help others find us by leaving a positive rating or review if that's how you feel about the show. This helps boost the podcast's visibility on podcasting platforms and is a free and easy way to help support our mission of protecting people from systems of control. Additionally, as some of you may have had the misfortune of experiencing personally, when you speak out against high control groups of any variety, there's often a backlash of criticism that comes from the group's followers. For us, That backlash occasionally takes shape in the form of a bad review, having nothing to do with the quality of the show, but having to do with the fact that someone is upset that I said something or one of my guests said something about a particular person or a particular group. These attempts to discredit the stories of survivors aims to discourage people from speaking up, but we continue undaunted. And if you have a positive view of our work, please let us hear your thoughts in an iTunes review, or rate us favorably on Spotify. This will help balance out reviews that attack a specific survivor or the ones that begin with things like, I'm not just a disgruntled Scientologist, but blah, blah, blah. It's a little frustrating, I must say. And there are also people who will say things like, I actually had a great experience with multi-level marketing, and so because of that, I'm going to give you a bad review for your show. And on and on. Oh, it's been fun. So we appreciate the effort and thank you to the many, many people who have already expressed their gratitude for our work. It means so much. It means everything and really goes a long way. So thanks to you. I want to be sure to thank the listeners all over the world, and especially over the last few weeks, the many listeners we've had in the U.S., in Great Britain, in Canada, Australia, Brazil, and Norway. And I've also received a lot of messages from people who listen to the show in Germany, which is very significant to me. And I hope to be able to find out from you What speaks to you about the show in that part of the world? Either way, let us know. For today on the show, we have someone coming back who talked about her experiences a while back and has done a lot since then to continue getting the word out and has also dealt with a lot of harassment as she has been pushing through the fear and the resistance to exposing what she feels very strongly about bringing to light. Sarah Landry is a Canadian jewelry artist who has made it her mission in life to expose the criminal activity of Nitanyanda, a con artist whom she once called Guru. Sarah spent nine years in a destructive cult led by the fraudulent Swami. She fell into the trap of this dangerous organization in Vancouver in 2009, believing it to be a yoga and meditation academy. Once in, the group tightened control over her life to the point that she was pressured to take the vow of monasticism in 2015 at the age of 30, and only then discovered the darkness behind the scenes. In 2018, she learned that children living in the ashram were regularly beaten and starved, sleep-deprived, and verbally berated as punishment for failure to perform on stage and failure to con people out of money through the demonstration of fake quote-unquote third eye powers. It took her a year to deprogram and get the courage to speak out. But on September 11th of 2019, she went public with a post on Facebook and a video on YouTube detailing the child abuse. Since then, Sarah has been the target of a massive character assassination attempt by the group she once wholeheartedly served. They have called her an agent of the Catholic Church and accused her of such crimes as the attempted assassination of the cult leader of rape, of war profiteering, and genocide. She is obviously innocent of all of those trumped-up accusations, and much to the chagrin of those trying to silence her, she continues to speak out against the crimes and abuse of Netanyahu and his followers. Here is Sarah now. It is so nice to see you, Sarah. It's been a long time. I know we sometimes correspond through social media and you've been on the show before and it made such an impact and it was really lovely to talk to you before. And uh, yeah, I was so looking forward to today. Good to see you.
1: Thank you, Rachel. It's good to be back. Good to see you too.
0: Yeah, it's it's been a wild ride for you, huh? It really uh, <laughs> is. Yeah. Let's talk about that because I think, you know, for people to, who haven't yet heard your story, it'd be great to hear a little bit about you and what brings you to the show. But then also for us to talk about how things have been since then, what has changed, what other exposure there's been and how life has been for you, because it was a it was a pretty rough ride at the moment when yeah. we talked and I don't know if things have changed or not. So if you can take a moment, just introduce yourself and then we'll start talking.
1: For sure. Yeah. Well, I'm Sarah and was in the cult led by a leader named Nityananda for nine years. And I guess the last time we spoke, I was still pushing kind of a grassroots effort to expose the abuse that took place in that cult. So mainly through social media, through YouTube videos and Facebook posts. And although the story had gone viral in India, we weren't really getting much support from Western media or any mainstream platforms outside of India. And what was difficult is that, like, if if somebody is a victim of abuse, whether it's a a narcissistic relationship or a bully boss or, you know, a, a sexual abuse taking place in the regular world... It's kind of like your word against theirs as a victim. But when there's cult abuse, it's your word against the entire community of brainwashed followers who are ready to do a smear campaign against you to silence you. And so the last time we were talking, I was just at the height of their smear campaign against me where every every time I opened my laptop, there was a new false accusation coming out I started to get really paranoid about Facebook, like I would get anxiety attacks if I saw a notification that I had a Facebook message, because usually that would be a link to a new video they were making with some new made up crime that they claimed I committed. So the abuse that we experienced in the cult sort of took a backseat to the abuse that the cult was hurling at me after speaking out. And that was something that I thought I was ready for, but I don't think anybody ever really knows how bad it's going to be until it's happening.
0: Okay. So I'm so sorry that that has happened to you. There are a couple of things I want to mention about that. When you're coming forward, I think people will sometimes get asked the question, why didn't you say something sooner? Or why didn't you say something at all? And this is part of the reason. That it is made so unpleasant and sometimes so intimidating and scary. And if you're already feeling isolated when you come out, this furthers that feeling that you're being really targeted and you're abandoned by the community. What we know is that a lot of people who will do that are doing that because they're not ready to see what you're saying, or they're needing to prove something about themselves to the leadership or to the group. And that's why they're saying these things. So, I mean, I, I've talked to enough people and maybe you have too, who said, you know, I had to do that. I had to say those things. I had to jump on that for my own safety because I wasn't ready or I wasn't ready to let on that I was questioning. And so for people hearing this, when they get attacked on mass, not everyone is really believing what they're saying, but they feel like they don't have a choice.
1: Absolutely. I've had people who have since left the cult tell me that everyone who was still residentially in the Vidhidi Ashram, was gathered in a place called the Sabha the day after I made my first post. And they were given the instruction to make up any story they felt would be believable to try to smear my name. And so... The false account of me attempting to assassinate the leader was brought up by somebody who knew that I had brought him a gift of chocolate. And they said, okay, we have enough witnesses that she gave him a chocolate bar. Let's say he was rushed to the emergency room and that he was poisoned and that now we're launching a criminal investigation against her. Since I had been the head of the social media team there... I regularly had the instruction to take people aside to film YouTube videos or take pictures for their Instagram. And so a number of people made the false claim that I had beaten them up to film or that I had sexually assaulted them while they were taking photos. And it was an orchestrated effort. So it's not even that they felt pressured from the community. It's that they were ordered to do it by the people who were the leads in that ashram. I don't take it personally. I know none of them believe these things they're saying, but that doesn't mean the outside members of the cult, like you know how the cult will have the core inner circle people who are the trusted confidants of the leader, and then there's the next ring who have a little bit more responsibility, and then that expands until you have the thousands of people who follow from the outside. I think those are the people who are believing this defamation. And that gets a little bit uncomfortable.
0: Right. Oh, most definitely uncomfortable. What happens too is so many people are put in in situations where they have to do things that are really wrong. They are encouraged to destroy people's reputations, which is a horrible thing. Uh, In the tradition that I was raised in, that's considered worse than killing someone because they have to live with the destroyed reputation. You know, um, death is is one of the Ten Commandments. So already it's a heavy hitter. And worse than that is killing someone's reputation. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, making false claims. So if you are encouraged by the group that you're in, by the partner that you have to make false claims against someone, you want to stop kind of dead in your tracks and think, what? not only what is happening here and how sick this is, but how am I going to feel about myself? later on, knowing that I've participated in this and maybe destroyed someone. There are a lot of people walking around with wounded consciousness, you know, because of the situations they were put in. They felt they had no choice but to sort of perform a certain way in, which is a horrible thing to do to somebody.
1: Exactly. Well, and and that's part of the reason I've gone on record a few times in YouTube videos and tweets and Facebook posts saying just As a heads up, if you're leaving that cult and you feel like you can't approach me because you've spread these rumors or made up these claims, I already understand and forgive you because I know you were forced to do it. If people understand um, just how deep that coercive control actually goes, I feel almost like it's not them doing these terrible things or making up these terrible claims. It's the superimposed personality that this leader has kind of installed to override their natural moral compass.
0: Right. Oh, that's really well said. So I'm wondering just how life has been. I know that there have been some very hard moments and I'm sure there have been some very gratifying ones. So I would love to hear about that as well.
1: The hard moments, I think we've covered enough. Every time I would open social media, there's a new ridiculous, each claim more absurd than the last. Like they claimed I was keeping somebody as a sex slave and that's just unfathomable to me. But what made it all worth it were the times I would get messages from people who left the cult thanking me for speaking out. There was a lady who sent me a photo of a beautiful little girl and she said, my daughter would be in that gurukul right now if it hadn't been for your videos. So that makes it worth it to me. There was a young boy who reached out to me. He's he's in his teens now, but he was a child when I was there. And he told me that he was part of the group who had to make up these false accusations and who had to take to social media to share all of the abuse. And he told me that all the kids in that gurukul had been gathered in the main Saba or the the main hall, and they were given devices to go on social media. They were instructed, don't watch her video, just comment that she's a liar, that you're blissful, that you love your school, that the teachers have never hurt you. And he said, one kid didn't hand the device back at the end of the session. And that kid snuck off to the main gate where they had internet reception and he actually watched my video and that they started this little stream where kids would pass this device to each other and walk to the gate to watch that video until every kid in the school had seen it. And he said they all just cried in relief that, okay, at least there's one grown-up who sees us, who recognizes what we've been through, and who isn't okay with what's happened to us. And for me, that made everything worth it, just knowing that somebody validated the trauma these kids are rightfully going through. Because every adult who's brainwashed in that place is telling them ferociousness is better than niceness. You know, you're, you are not being beaten. Your incompletion is being beaten. Your lack of integrity is being beaten. You're having your patterns broken. And so some of them have had bones broken in these beatings and they're told this is going to release new energy into your system and. Just imagine the the horror of being brutalized like that and then being gaslit to believe that it's for your own good. So I feel like a lot of these kids had no emotional outlet before. And I feel like at least, at least they know that somebody out here cares. And part of the struggle is my shock that the country of India hasn't yet brought him to justice. Like two of the women who were heads of that Gurukul served, I think, three months of jail time after being arrested for the kidnapping of a girl named Nandita. But that's not enough. That's like a slap on the wrist compared to how they've actually abused people. So that's why it would be so much easier, I think, to just drop it, move on with my life and do my thing. But I feel like I've promised these kids that I'll do everything I can to help them. And it would be It would be wrong to give up now. Wow.
0: I mean, that's very devoted and really selfless in a lot of ways, especially when it gets very unpleasant for you to keep going. Of course, we could talk for hours about this whole idea of kids not being beaten, but being beaten, but it called something else and for for their benefit somehow. And that's sort of always how it is in these groups or in abusive relationships. And if people could see a cultic system as an abusive relationship and think it would clarify it for a lot of people, like I'm hitting you for your own good. And so knowing that this kid, I mean, it's incredible that he snuck off and he was able to listen to what you had to say, which was just stating the facts. And because there isn't really this uh, kind of rooting in reality when you're there, things aren't what they seem and things are called other things. The fact that someone was calling it as it was I'm sure was very impactful. And the fact that he shared it with other people and they were crying or or feeling probably very taken care of, that someone got it, someone knew it, someone was willing to say it. And it makes me wonder too, not just how they felt about you in that moment, but how they felt about all the other adults around them who were telling them to hide it and to not deal with it and how much they got this sense about the adults not caring who were supposed to care about them.
1: That's the part that I find the hardest because those are not just strangers who have kidnapped them. These are their own parents and adults who they have identified as role models from birth. The kids who were actually born into the cult. So it must be really confusing for a lot of them because these are the people, like you said, who should be standing up for them and supporting them. But these are the people enabling their abuser and also abusing them. And when I first spoke out, I knew that there were beatings taking place because that's what really woke me up to leave. I didn't know there was also pedophilia going on. And that is something that I've found really hard to deal with is at least 10 of the kids who have been abused by Nityananda have reached out to me privately to tell me what happened to them in his bedroom. But They aren't ready to go public yet. Their parents are still part of the leadership in the organization. And it's really hard knowing that we have a character here here who is equal to a Ranieri or an Epstein, and we have a large number of victims, but they don't feel safe to come forward. And I, I think what makes this so much different from the case of the girl who Ranieri raped, or the the young women who were trafficked by Epstein, is that the victims are still physically under the control of the cult? They still live with their parents, who are supporters of the fraudulent leader. They don't have any kind of safety whatsoever. One of these girls, she chatted with me quite extensively about the abuse she went through, and then she disappeared. I I didn't get any more messages from her for months, and she wound up on what's called Nithyananda TV, introducing one of his live programs. And later I heard from a mutual friend who's also inside, but starting to see the holes in it, that her parents had caught her. They had looked in her device, they'd seen she was speaking to me. And so they shipped her right back. So it's, it's really quite frustrating to know that The crimes that I have spoken up about publicly, it's like everybody in the cult now believes that that happened because enough other people have come forward. There's a a girl named Kalpalata who's come forward about the December 31st beatings. She you know, confirmed what I said and added some extra details to it and her younger brother as well. So kids have spoken up now about the beatings, but the cult rationalizes that they accept that they say, well, these are not actually kids. They're incarnations of great yogis. And so we can't look at them the way we would look at a Western child who's actually vulnerable. These are strong, powerful people. It's their patterns being hit, but I feel like the people who justify the beatings, I don't think they would justify sexual abuse that's being done to these kids. And so how to bring that forward in a way that they will, I don't know, believe it when you don't have the victim themselves willing to speak up. I I do feel a lot of pressure in that sense, That it's like if you're the only person seeing what's going on in a horror movie and you're yelling at people to save themselves, but they think you're crazy. How can you actually get into it? That's, that's sort of how life feels to me.
0: Wow. That's very powerful on a smaller scale. I, for myself, and then I want to expand it to the larger scale that you're dealing with. The smaller scale I think about because of the work that I do when people will say to me, Oh, I got involved in this thing or this multi-level marketing thing or this is great. Or this healers, I know you're not into healers, but this one is really good. Or this psychic really knows their stuff. And then I, I will try to be open and I'll say, well, tell me a little bit about what you're learning or what they say. And I can hear the manipulation from the start and they don't hear it because it, it takes sort of a trained ear. I wouldn't have heard it at the beginning of my career, I've learned it over time to detect it and have my antenna up as you do too now. So I can hear it. And then I think, do I want to be the party crasher over and over again? That seems to be my role. Is that my job? Do I need to do that? If children were involved, I would be the party crasher time and time again. I would feel wrong not saying what is true with adults, you know, yeah, I can let them know. i think, thinking, uh, you know, fine. So, so they're being had to what degree? Fine. But are they being put in danger? Are their rights taken away? Are their laws being broken and justified and lifelong trauma that's going to be set in motion?
1: Exactly. I'm still one of those people who's into the mystical stuff. I love crystals and tarot readings and healers. I think that's all fun. It's it adds color to my life. I enjoy it. But if I'm seeing somebody who's a self-proclaimed psychic healer, and they're telling somebody you're cursed, unless you give me this much money to break the curse, that's where it crosses a line into abusive and manipulative. And I get what you're saying. Like if, if somebody really believes in somebody who I can see as just smoke and mirrors, do I want to take away their their excitement and, and say, hey, this is all fake? Probably not. But like you said, if, if kids are being abused, if people are being swindled out of their life savings, that's a whole other story. You know, if if I had left that organization just because I couldn't handle the lifestyle, which is what they tell their insiders, they'll say, you know, Sarah wanted. She wanted the spotlight. She was jealous of the guru. She wanted to be the one being praised on stage. And that's why she ran away. If that had actually been the case, I wouldn't have deliberately put myself out there to speak against the organization, knowing that they would commit character assassination. And I knew that they would because that's what they did to Arti Rao, his first public rape victim, and Lenin Karupan, the person who first went to the media against him. So I knew they were going to do this, which if I was actually guilty of any of the crap they've accused me of, why would I have deliberately stood up to say, okay, you know, expose me? I wouldn't have.
0: No, you wouldn't have. And what's so interesting too, is going back to this idea of people who are manipulators, accusing other people of doing what they're doing or accusing other people of being what they are. So I think about you being accused of being someone who is this media hound, let's say, and and that you need attention. Meanwhile, you just mentioned something called Nityananda television, right? Yeah. Hello. So- Who wants that exposure and their name connected to it and a whole TV, you know, program and station or whatever else devoted to them. And they're going to call you someone who is doing this just for media exposure. Really, I mean, it's a little
1: ironic. It really is. Well, and the the instruction, everybody who was in his cult when I was there, we each had a different guruvak, which is a Sanskrit term that means the word of the guru, like what you are supposed to be according to him, and he called it his anyakara, which is his vision for your life. And so, each of us was given a specific role to play within his organization. And he told me his exact words verbatim: "Become a Hindu Oprah." That was my anyakara guru vak from him. So he told me to start a television network, start a magazine. Uh, create a a podcast, go on all the different news channels, interviewing yogis and yoginis from other Hindu groups, um, giving a platform to other leaders, other gurus. He claims to be a Shaivite, and I say claims to be because he doesn't live by the principles of genuine Shaivite Hinduism, but he would say interview shaktas and Vaishnavites and Brahmis, like interview people from all the different walks of Hindu tradition and focus 80% on all the other organizations, 20% on me, on himself, because he knew these other people didn't recognize any kind of a validity because he was not part of a guru parampara. There isn't a lineage that he's been initiated into the way genuine gurus are. So that's why in India, they call him a self-styled godman. He's not actually given this authority from anybody as a predecessor. So he gave me this assignment to legitimize him by building up a platform seemingly unrelated to him, but then that would bring him in also. So what's interesting is, From the time I entered that organization, he tried to use my speaking skills, my appearance, all the followers I had built up for myself on YouTube. He wanted to hijack that and use it to promote himself. So it's not like I became a sannyasi and took the vows of renunciation and said, now I'm going to try to get popular on the internet. That was the assignment he gave me. And so it's really ironic that The way he's trying to discredit me is by pointing out that I did what he instructed me to do. Like she tried to get famous. She tried to get attention. She tried to speak out, but people who were there at the same time I was there, they know everything I did was his instruction to do. And it's kind of funny that in a way he prepared me to expose him. He, he made me develop the skills to speak out publicly that I'm now using not to glorify and legitimize him, but to warn people that he's dangerous.
0: Just going back to this idea of being set up, it happens so often like, okay, so I think about people again in relationships with controllers where they are driven crazy and then they're called crazy. Or they're made so frustrated and angry because they can't be heard and no one's believing them suddenly. And and then so they raise their voice and then they're called abusive. But they were set up. It was created. I also think just about my own history and my own tradition where Jews in certain parts of the world at certain times were relegated to having the jobs that no one Wanted and that would make them hated. And they were made the tax collectors having to go door to door. And then they were called money hungry. <laughs> but that was the only job they were allowed to have. And they knew what it was going to create that people were going to hate these people coming to collect the taxes. So, how much of it are you set up to then be labeled something that you had no choice about? But I'm wondering also just, and there's so many different things I'm sure you want to be able to cover. I'm wondering about. Him as this case study, how he charmed his way, how he gets away or got away with so much. And yeah, causing people to stay in silence or blame themselves or look inward in a critical way. Yeah, that can certainly happen. Paying off government officials. I don't know if that happened for sure, but it happens in a lot of places. I wouldn't be surprised. I can't I can't say for sure because I don't want to be sued.
1: I can say for sure, because I I know the people who did it and who have left, and who have told me about it. Ah, interesting. Okay, so let's, if we can spend a
0: little bit of time so people get a sense of who this person is, who started this empire, really, you know, and made a lot, had a lot of followers, but really is disordered in his thinking.
1: What's interesting is that there are two... Nityananda's, like there's the, this, the backstory that he gave all of us to make us believe he's a legitimate avatar Purusha or incarnation. And then there's the actual life story that's been revealed since people in his life have come forward about where he was at the times he claimed to be doing what he claimed to be doing. So who I thought he was when I first joined his cult or was recruited and bait and switched into his cult. He claimed that at the age of 12, he had his first experience of enlightenment and that it had set him on a path of seeking how to deliver that enlightenment to the world. He told us that at the age of 16, he left his family home with nothing but the saffron robe and a beggar's bowl, and that he wandered the length and breadth of India for nine years, realized that he was an avatar claims that Mahavatar Babaji gave him the name Nityananda and that then he established his public mission. That was what I believed at the time that I joined. It was printed in a little book that they would give us at his center. People would talk about how blessed we are to be with somebody who was a balasant, enlightened from childhood. Since leaving, I've found news stories of people who were his classmates at a polytechnic that he joined at the age of 16 who have said that everybody in the school was scared of him because he was known to practice Black magic. So this whole false narrative that we believe that he did Parivrajaka, that he, he wandered India in nothing but wooden sandals, that was a complete lie. And he actually, he claims to be uneducated, that he downloaded English from the cosmos to be able to speak to people in the Western world. No, he he was taught English at college. He is educated. He went to school to become an engineer. And what I believe happened, and this is just my personal, you know, I, I have no proof of this. But my belief is because he was born and raised in a town called Tiruvannamalai, which has a Jyotirlinga temple. Um, it's one of the main pilgrimage centers for Shaivite Hindus. A lot of people... In that community were enlightened masters. There was a man called Ramana Maharishi in the 1900s, who famously was a guru. You know, Carl Jung was one of his followers and and would promote his work and said that he has a consciousness that other people strive to have. So I feel like the young boy who grew up to be Nityananda was raised in the shadow of Ramana Maharishi, seeing, okay, he teaches meditation. He has Westerners who praise him. He has a huge successful property with beautiful buildings and infrastructure and people revere him. I feel kind of like he saw what Ramana Maharishi did and decided he would emulate that. And so... Ramana Maharishi's life story includes an enlightenment experience at a young age. Nityananda paraphrases that and turned it into his so-called enlightenment experience. And I feel like it's been a carefully curated emulation of somebody who he thought he could get away with pretending to be. And so on stage, he's all about oneness, which is something Maharishi taught. He's all about being friendly to express Advaita, which is, you know, being in a space where you see yourself and everyone else, he he has a lot of really beautiful messages he delivers, but he doesn't live those behind the scenes. And so a lot of people on the outside will hear things that he says and feel nurtured and comforted and elevated because it's very empowering to hear somebody tell you you are a reflection of the divine. You're in this life to experience and express oneness. Who wouldn't want that? It sounds great. But once you actually get there into his physical presence and get to know him, you see the tyrant behind the mask. He'll start yelling at you for not fulfilling his impossible instructions. If you don't, For example, the people who bring him food, if they don't serve it at the right temperature and the right quantity with the right seasoning, he'll throw the plate at them and call them stupid idiots. Like he, he's very toxic and the people who fell in love with his stage persona don't want to admit how toxic he actually is because I feel like they develop a certain attachment to the idea that there's this divine God, man who loves them. It's, it's really sad actually. Even the people on the fringes of his organization, to an extent, they've been hijacked. Their lives are no longer self-sovereign. They're giving their power to him.
0: Incredible. And I hear very similar stories, like people in 3-H-O who were preparing meals, et cetera, and also were berated and you know, things were, were thrown and insults were hurled over and over again while people are kind of slaving over making sure that this person's needs are taken care of perfectly. So I wonder about when you said his expectations being so high, so exaggerated. I remember a story you told about how many videos you needed to make and how just how there weren't enough hours in the day, basically, for you to do all that he wanted you to do to feed the kind of the propaganda machine. Can you talk a little bit about that and some of the other things that he was expecting of people that they just could not deliver on?
1: Absolutely. So, yeah, like like I told you last time, he would tell us everyone here has to make 10 videos a day. And that was my instruction was to ensure that all the other residents in the ashram produce 10 videos a day on Facebook Live, YouTube and Instagram Live. Meanwhile, each of them had their own impossible assignment. So as an example, the Nithyananda yoga team were expected to bring in 10,000 people for yoga teachers training. They were expected to have all of their posts about his yoga shared on other major platforms. They were meant to, if somebody comes into the program who's overweight, they were expected to get that person into some kind of idealized beauty standard yoga physique so that that person could start making propaganda posts saying my life has been changed thanks to Nithyananda yoga every team had something that they were expected to deliver that would be physically impossible you know a a person can't go from a hundred pounds overweight to slim and fit in a 21 day teacher training it's physically impossible And yet that was the expectation he put on the yoga team. The Gurukul team, I feel, had it worse because the kids were expected to not only gain magical superpowers, but also transfer those powers through osmosis or what he called Shaktipada to participants of the program. And that's what led to their mass beating was that they didn't do the impossible thing they were instructed to do. And you know, I've, I've debated this with some of my friends who have escaped the cult. Did he deliberately tell us to do impossible things so that he could call us failures and make us grovel to him to make us better and to help us do the thing that he's blessed us and empowered us to do? Or is he legit psycho and crazy and believes that these impossible things are doable and goes into a a tyrannical rage that he's blessed us, but we're still not doing it. Either way, it shatters a person's self-esteem. A lot of people who leave his cult, I, I have a friend who's in therapy now trying to come to terms with the fact that she is not doomed to fail at everything in her life just because she failed at everything he told her to do that she wasn't able to do. It's really sad but yeah everyone there had impossible standards um the kitchen team were expected to take a zero dollar budget and you know bags of donated white rice and make gourmet quality food every person there was given nothing and expected to deliver everything
0: incredible and so then I always wonder with all of the 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 slave labor basically The, the worker bees, you know, the, the ones who keep it running. Usually the leader isn't doing very much of anything.
1: No, he wasn't. So I was curious
0: about that. What, what sort of a day in the life for him?
1: He would sleep in as late as he wanted to. Um, part of my responsibility there was to introduce him on stage before his daily discourse. And some days after giving the five minute intro that we had planned, Somebody in the tech pit beneath the stage would hold up a sign that said, Swami is not coming today, keep talking for another fifty minutes. And then I would have to on the spot just give a an hour long discourse in his place because he was still sleeping. Nobody was allowed to make noise while he was asleep in the courtyard where he had his room in the building called a palace. So people who had surrendered to him and taken the vows under him slept in squalid conditions in a dorm with Bed bug infested, dirty mattresses. A lot of us would sleep. I got rid of my mattress and just slept on the metal bed frame because I didn't want that touching me, the the dirty old mattress. We had no air conditioning and the heat of the summer, which reaches like 40 degrees Celsius. No AC in the summer, no heat in the winter. We were told a yogic body is beyond hot and cold. But of course, once I reached the higher level where I was in his bedroom, and by higher level, I mean, once once he lured me into the state of being one of his sexual abuse victims, I would get brought to his bedroom. Of course, he had air conditioning. He had a hot tub and fancy, you know, Western style bathroom, all the luxuries. We were all told yoga is the only exercise vedically accepted, but he had an elliptical machine. So... The things that were denied to the average cult member, he enjoyed behind the scenes. And only the select few people in his cult who were given a status were privy to see that. Obviously, he knew if somebody off the street saw him with air conditioning, they'd say, well, hey, how come you said a yogi is beyond hot and cold, but you have a fancy duvet on your bed and you have air conditioning in your room? So he lived the ultimate hypocrisy. He preached something called sattva, which in Sanskrit there's there's three qualities of being that are assigned to, to different people called the three gunas, the triguna. So there's rajas, tamas, and sattva. Rajas means restlessness. So a person who's like a type A, they have to always be doing something, they're easily distracted, they're kind of workaholics, they're focused on gaining power and money, um, that would be called a rajas person. Tamas is like a lethargic, lazy person who wants to lie around, eat a lot of, you know, rich foods, not work, have people serve them. And then satwa is the third state, which is beyond the two, which claims the person works just the right amount in order to live a, a satisfying life, rests when they need to rest. So he claimed to be in the state of satwa. But his entire demeanor was only between the two extremes of rajas and tamas. He would sleep twelve to fifteen hours at a stretch. He would only eat really fancy foods that were brought in specially for him. He didn't eat what the rest of us ate. Although he was very goal oriented and driven, he wanted to be the most popular guru in India. He wanted political clout. He wanted money. He wanted famous people to worship him. He wasn't willing to do any of that work. So he would, like I said, yell at the rest of us to try to make it happen. And, you know, there was a time he did a fire ceremony at the temple. In traditional... Vedic scriptures, it describes the pujari or the person who performs the fire ceremony will build the altar, they'll, they'll lay the bricks, they'll paint the, the turmeric to keep away the negative energies. He never did that prep work. He would have a team of people do all the prep work. He would come in once the cameras were on, do the ceremony, leave for others to clean it up. But there was a time he was doing one of these homas. And his instruction to me was to make sure this gets 1 million live views. And if it doesn't go viral, I would be sent to do Praes Chita, which is his version of what Scientology would call the RPF. So there was a lot riding on it. And I remember feeling like, obviously, this is another impossible task, but in the brainwashed state i also believed lord shiva is going to make this happen for me if he tells me to do it then it's not impossible and it's my incompletion or it's my lack of faith that's creating the blockage and i actually did get that homa to have 1 million not people watching it live but 1 million impressions on on facebook live which means a million people saw it in their news and unfortunately That meant every time following that, when we didn't just stumble into some kind of lucky Facebook impressions loop, I was expected to recreate something that happened as a fluke. So just impossible standards all around for everybody in that organization. And we were told, don't eat or sleep until you achieve this goal. And so we were already sleep deprived and denied proper nutrition. On top of that, we would self-punish because we felt like we didn't deserve to go to bed or to eat something until we fulfilled his Guru Vak. Wow. And the
0: self-punishment, that's something that was fostered within the community. That was a teaching that you needed to go without or you needed to suffer.
1: Punishment and, and a community of people around you ready to report you if they see you taking a nap. Before you complete this task, each group had what's called a team lead. He called it a team lead. So for social media, I was the team lead. For Temple, there was a team lead for programs department. There was a team lead. Everybody in the team was expected to monitor each other and report to the team lead if somebody was off task. And then the team lead is expected to report that to admin, which was a lady named Ranjita, the actress who was in the scandal with him. And if Ranjita finds out that somebody didn't fulfill the Guru Vak, that person would be sent to do Prayas Chita. So hard manual labor, even less food, even less sleep, forbidden from speaking to anybody in the main community. Their cell phone would be taken away. They'd lose the right to join the morning yoga in the main hall. They would have to do it along, but in a dirty, it's like a converted shipping container that they had to live in. So just... Oh yeah, it was, it was brutal.
0: Oh, I think about that as you described the heat, also a shipping container, a metal shipping container.
1: In South India, in the middle of a jungle. Yeah.
0: While he has air conditioning.
1: While he has air conditioning and then a luxury penthouse sort of a suite, yeah.
0: You know, as we continue talking about some of the stories and also going back to something you brought up about how more isn't being done. And maybe we can talk about why that might be and what needs to be done. Some of the things that I think people might not think about when they hear that someone has gotten involved in something like this or someone has left something like this is that your experience is these bigger events, but they're also made up of these tiny moments that are gonna stay with you. And I'm wondering about you laying down without a mattress on the metal bed frame. And in those moments, even just in terms of you know not having enough to eat or whatever, again, all the, the thousands of moments that uh, make up a day, what were you thinking when you just couldn't tolerate and for good reason, sleeping on a mattress that was infested? I agree with you. That was a good idea. Yeah, but you. then what was your other choice? Being totally uncomfortable in another way And were you thinking this was for your benefit? What made it somehow okay or make sense in that moment? He
1: told all of us that he wanted us to have comfortable, nice conditions, but that the hospitality team failed to implement his instructions. He would say, I've told these donkeys he he liked to call people donkeys which i don't understand but he would say i told these donkeys to order new mattresses and they're not doing it so you're suffering because machidrupa wants you to suffer he would he would deflect it onto whoever he claimed he instructed to give to provide the better mattresses and we would then ask her, why are you not getting it? Swamiji says he told you to order mattresses. And she'd say, no, I requested to order mattresses. He didn't approve my request. And then she would get sent to do Prayas Chita because she's abused the master by telling us what actually happened. And so there was a constant uh, inculcation in us that we are not allowed to say anything against what he says. He would deflect blame for things like the bed bug infestation or all the lice that the kids in the Gurukul had. He'd blame the kids' lice on the Gurukul teachers, and yet he would forbid them from ordering anything with chemicals in them. So the lice treatment shampoo would have chemical. He'd say, well, that's not Satvik, so you can't put it in their hair. So there, there was always a justification from him. And it's so ironic because one of his teachings was very similar to the Nexium teaching of being at cause. He told us, You are the cause of your reality. Everything that happens in and around you is sourced in you. If your bed is dirty, you have an inner dirtiness that you need to purge. If you have lice, there's something in your mindset that has drawn these lice to your head to teach you something. So we all felt. We had created the conditions in the dorm. He's not sleeping in the dorm. So how could he be the cause of it? We're the cause of this. Again, the self-punishment also came from the self-blame. When you believe that you are the cause of everything in your reality and shit goes wrong in your reality, you did it to yourself. And he's trying to empower you with these teachings to go beyond that unfortunate mindset that created this reality you were not enjoying. So we would never have thought to question him about it and and there's people there who are still crippled by this skewed version of reality um i tweeted something after a few months ago there were there were rebels in sri lanka who stormed the palace and found despite all the poverty in that country the king was living in such opulent conditions or the president I i forget his title but I tweeted something and said, I wish the residents of the Bididi Audinum would just go have a look at A10 because Nithyananda was living with that same level of opulence. And they started retweeting me, calling me a war profiteer, saying you are benefiting from the civil war in Sri Lanka, trying to push your anti-Hindu agenda. So that's that's the extent they push it. Rachel, They they blamed me for the horrific mass graves in Canadian residential schools. They said, Sarah Landry, who is trying to commit genocide against Aboriginal cultures, to any rational thinking person that's absurd, but this is what they're putting out there. And when I spoke out and said, actually, these horrific events took place before I was born, they brought my family into it and said, well, you're your Catholic school teacher ancestors did this, which is not true at all. My the Catholic side of my family were still living in Quebec at the time, far from the prairies where I am now. Nobody in my lineage became a school teacher until my, my grandfather's generation, which happened after these residential school wars. But they'll they'll take anything that's a headline news story and use that to convince their current followers that anybody speaking against their Guru is evil because look what these evil people are doing so I have half of my family is Catholic the other half is Mennonite they don't say anything about the Mennonite half because those were peaceful people who you know lived in their own kind of culty commune if you ask me but they'll bring the Catholic side into it and say look look at the historical genocide she's committing it is so out there. And and yeah, I think
0: when you say, Yeah, no, I wasn't born yet, they can't let it go like a dog on a bone. They have to keep going with this story. So ah, so if it wasn't you, it was someone else in your family, because we're gonna keep throwing the ball in this direction so that no one looks at the actual source and the actual root of the problem, and no one turns the focus back on us. Let's just keep keeping Sarah Landry's family on the witness stand indefinitely so that you have to defend and you have to prove and for what
1: and all just because I think it's a distraction, you know? Exactly. Well, and and look at the main thing that I first went public about in that organization, the abuse of the Gurukul students who are residential school inmates in his cult. And so they're trying to blame me for horrors that happened in Canadian residential schools. It's deflecting from the actual trauma kids are suffering, getting beaten by the Acharyas, initiated and instigated by Nityananda. So they're completely trying to shift the focus from what I'm saying onto my character, my reputation, and the false accusations they've made up. I think they believe that they can keep people looking at the crimes they've accused me of committing, that will stop people from listening to me talk about the crimes they've committed. But what they don't realize is that thanks to Scientology and the aftermath, seduce, the vow, we understand in the Western world how cult abuse happens and what it looks like and what fair game looks like. They don't get that they're just proving our point by doing things like this.
0: Right, they don't.
1: And I think, you know, when
0: they try to come across as these sort of enlightened people, but meanwhile, they are hate mongering and they're doing all these false accusations and, you know, it's hardly spiritual. And I think it, yeah, it shows how worried they are about The attention focused back on them and how much they have to hide. It's so suspicious. I think for anyone listening, if you find that a spotlight is being kind of shined on someone or an event or a time, and instead of those people addressing it, they suddenly change the conversation and have it be about someone completely different or a different family or a different reason. And you're now talking about something totally different than where the conversation started. It'd be good to take a step away and notice that and say, what just just happened? Why are they pulling me in this direction? What do they not want me to see if I stayed where this conversation began? It's all so manipulative, but we are all prone to it. I'm wondering about what's being done and what more needs to be done. And if people also have had experiences with this, what they can do and how they can participate in making a change if needed. So if we can shift over to that, that'd be great. But also, if there are other things you want to make sure to mention, please feel free.
1: I love the question of what needs to be done and what's being done now, because unfortunately, not enough is being done. So Interpol has issued a blue corner notice against Nitenanda. I think that was already in effect the last time we spoke. That needs to be escalated to a red corner notice because right now there's a non bailable arrest warrant issued against him in India for the crime of rape. But Interpol doesn't have him on their wanted list, they only have him on their suspicious person we want to know where he is list. And the permission to local police in whatever country he might be hiding in to actually arrest him only comes when Interpol escalates that warrant to a red corner notice and i don't know why that hasn't happened yet what his group is doing is hounding the united nations to try to legitimize themselves as a minority group and they've gained some headway there they're they're i mean gained some headway as far as they've taken some selfies with officials and they've given some talks at summits that make it look like they've been legitimized, even though it's more like they're gate crashing and then telling people that they have the support of these powerful individuals. I feel what really needs to happen is that organizations that exist for the protection of women and children, so his rape victims, his victims of beatings and just abuse in general, need to get involved to let the UN know not to entertain his spokespeople when they request to give a talk. Political figures in the UK right now are regularly welcoming in a lady who has the status of Mahant in his organization. So she's appearing at, you know, Hindu community events held by government in London. Well, wearing his mala with his picture on it, um, shaking hands with people, tweeting about how supportive the community is. She's the very lady who stopped me from going to Child Protective Services when the kids confided in me about getting beaten back in 2019. So she's not innocent. And yet people are treating her like she's a. a Prominent member of a genuine Hindu organization. It's not a genuine Hindu organization. It's a cult that has put on the blanket of Hinduism to try to get religious credibility. So, Nityananda, he trained his first group of devotees with Dianetics back in 2006. So, he systematically emulated a Scientology model for a cult. But because he puts Hindu words and Sanskrit words to the things he does, it's like he he's using Hinduism in order to make it seem like he's not a cult and gaslighting people by saying, you only have a problem with these things I'm doing because of your perverted Western logic. If you understood Sanatana Dharma, you'd understand me. In reality, people who actually practice the sacred Sanatana Dharma path, they know that what he's doing is wrong. By any standard. And so I feel like Hindu groups and and Hindu groups who are, I believe they are doing a good thing by promoting their tradition and breaking down stereotypes and putting a stop to academic Hindu phobia. I applaud the work they do. I'm pro-Hindu, not anti-Hindu. I feel they are making a big mistake by accepting him as an ally when he's like a snake trying to come in and use their platform to legitimize the abuse he's doing. That needs to be done. I feel Hindu groups need to understand he is not, he does not care about Hinduism. He uses Hinduism for political allies, for strength to avoid his crimes being brought to the public and to silence whistleblowers. That needs to be done. How we can do that, I really don't know. If I knew I'd be doing it already. But I feel exposing his crimes is the first thing. So there's a docuseries now made by Vice on Discovery Plus platform called My Daughter Joined a Cult. That goes into detail about his child abuse and the financial fraud and a murder of a young girl who was there a couple of years before I moved there. I feel like if people just see that and understand the way he runs his organization, like a mafia, that's, that's very important. Getting the word out publicly. Like I've, I've been really blessed in the last year or so to connect with people like Susan Dones and Tony Natale and Sarah Edmondson, and being able to chat with them about how they were able to bring down Keith Raniere has given me the hope that we will be able to do this for Nithyananda as well. And one of the things these brave and powerful women have told me is that when they went to the FBI and the police and the authorities, they believed something was going to be done But nothing was actually done until there was a public outcry demanding it. And so I do have faith in the system, but I think it's slow moving to get the system to actually do its job. So I I think getting the word out there more and more sadly needs to happen. Susan had said something about how it's not fair that victims of cult abuse have the responsibility put on them to provide evidence and to track down, follow the money trail to see where the fraud is happening, where the money laundering is happening. It's not right. But if we want to bring down a cult, we have to do it ourselves. So I feel like just, just support would be really great you know, for people to follow the story, to stand up for the kids. You know, if, if you know somebody who's a member of his cult, whether it's an inner circle member or whether it's one of the fringe people who just watches his discourses, let them know there are two sides to this story and really let them know if anybody ever tells you that their critics are demons, their critics are evil, their critics are dangerous. If you tell them you're in a cult, he's a, he's a cult leader, he's bad, they will shut you out of their life but show them examples of how other cults happened. You know, for me, my first big wake-up call that I mentioned to you last time was coming home to renew my visa and watching Scientology in the aftermath and recognizing, whoa, everything these people are talking about happens in Nityananda community. That's when I knew, whoa, this really is being run like a cult. So I wasn't ready at that time for somebody to tell me Your guru is a fraud and he's a cult leader, and this thing he's doing to you is bad. But when I saw victims of Scientology stand up and say, This is how I was shunned when I left, this is how I was sent to the RPF for questioning my leader, I suddenly thought, Well, that's just like being sent to Prayas Chitta if I don't fulfill this assignment. Whoa, maybe that is a bad thing. So I feel like if every current member of Nityananda's Sangha watch the vow, that might snap them out of it because they'll recognize the rudra kanyas are identical to Das. The Rudras are a male equivalent of Das. Like if they could see what's being done to them, how other people who have gone through the same thing have been able to wake up and get out of it. I think that will be really powerful to wake them up.
0: That's very powerful. So much of that is is so important to to really listen to sort of what what gets in the way of progress being made in terms of protecting people, if there can be focus on where you started this, which is that it it's different from a Hindu religion in the following significant ways. So maybe it doesn't qualify to get the same protection as a genuine Hindu or religious organization. So there's that. And then it's like, Scientology calling itself the Church of Scientology. Well, is it a church or is it not? It's it's not. I mean, you know, having talked to people who were there on site when Al Ron Hubbard came in with a seamstress to fit them with clerical collars because they were suddenly going to be a church and they were going to be ministers, and they all started laughing, thinking it was a joke. So that's how much of a church it is. I think that that and the focus on the children and what's happening to the children. That is, I think that's going to hopefully get people's attention. But you're right the onus is on the victim so often and it really shouldn't have to be. And there should be government agencies and watchdog gr- groups coming forward and saying, let's let's lend our voice to this so that it's not just the children and the, the people who have left who are adults, who are afraid, who we're relying on to ta- to speak up about this, because that's asking a lot and sometimes asking the impossible.
1: It really is. When I was still there, we would regularly, and and I didn't feel it as a threat at the time, but in hindsight, I can see it was a threat. We were told don't become another Arti Rao. And she's the rape victim of his who went public and was hit with a number of retaliation lawsuits. And now she owes 500,000 USD because of those legal fees in the States. We would be told don't become the next Arti Rao. And that meant if you speak out against him, the litigation antagonization is going to ruin your life. But my friend Lainey, who bravely came forward about her experience being trafficked in South America by Nityananda, she told me that about a week before she escaped, she tried to escape, they dragged her back in and they told her, don't become another Sarah Landry. So now they're using their smear campaign against me to scare people that if you speak out, you'll be accused of rape, you'll be accused of drug trafficking, you'll be accused of being an assassin sent to kill Nityananda. So not only is it kind of on the victims to prove that we've been victimized, but also we know that if we stand up and give that evidence, tell our stories, go public, we will then be attacked by an organization that, you know, People ask, how is he getting away with it? Two of his top devotees are corporate lawyers for Google. I'm an Etsy jewelry artist in Canada. I have nothing compared to what he has legally. So the way Ranieri had the Bronfmans, he's got people in Silicon Valley with bottomless pockets, legal training, Harvard law degrees, and they threatened to sue me when I spoke out. And I think the reason I've been able to do it safely is that in Canada, you can't as easily put a fake case on somebody. So like, it's just crazy that criminal organizations can use the law to keep doing criminal things. And I feel like that power dynamic needs to be shifted. And I feel like what they have on their side is money, status, power, and large numbers of people. But what we have on our side is the truth and a public who now understands how this kind of manipulation looks. I don't think the Bronfmans could get away with suing somebody like Tony Natale today now that we know who she is and what was done to her. In the past, it's your word against the community. And that means you're at a disadvantage. But now it's your word against a cult And the cult has all of its brainwashed followers, but you have an enlightened public who understand what cult abuse is, who are not going to stand for it. So what they feel is that they've got all these people, all these professionals, all this money, and you've got just yourself. But I do feel that there is power in the fact that cults are kind of trending right now, thanks to docu-series that show it. I see that as a really good thing.
0: It's a really good thing. And... George Orwell talks about this and other, and people who are sociologists talk about this, that during a time um, when things are really topsy-turvy or an organization that is not healthy, it is the truth tellers who are the most vilified. And so that is always a sign that something is off, that the people who are saying, I don't, it's not that I hate, it's not that I'm against Hinduism, it's not that I'm against whatever, I'm saying this is what happened to me and this is what happens. That's it. And so I think it's actually a really kind of simple message, like just holding a mirror up to the reality. And that should be welcome if a group is interested in changing, if a group or a leader is interested in becoming healthier and making it a safer environment. If they're not interested in those things, then they're not going to care about your message and they're going to want you to stop sharing it. So I think that when people say, don't be a Sarah Landry, I say, be a Sarah Landry, (laughs) (laughs) go for it and speak the truth and connect with other people who are the Sarah Landrys who are saying, I want to do something. It's worthy. And the children and the adults, they're all worthy of me stepping forward and staying there until something is done. So Thank you so much for today and let people know where they can find you and also about your Etsy site and all of it, because I know what you make is gorgeous. Go
1: ahead. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. So I, I recently launched a website that is saralandry.ca. And my Etsy shop is called The Art of Gems. Um, it's also linked on my website. And I think I've put it up in my link tree on Instagram and Twitter and everywhere. Contrary to what the cult tells people, I'm not an independently wealthy member of the Illuminati. I'm just a very <laughs> okay. humble whistleblower who makes my living on Etsy. So I do appreciate the ability to, to talk about that a little. Mm-hmm. Illuminati, they're just pulling stuff out oh, of yeah. everywhere.
0: Okay, got There was it. a
1: PowerPoint presentation made by one of the cult members who used to be contracted as a rocket scientist for NASA. And she made a PowerPoint presentation Linking me to the Illuminati and claiming that everybody who has left the cult who I've interviewed on YouTube did so because I paid them a million dollars to become anti. So, and that's not true. If I had money like that, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't keep running an Etsy shop. That would be <laughs> Right, exactly.
0: Wow. Okay. All right. So really good to see you. I hope to talk to you again soon and good luck with everything that you're doing.
1: Thank you so much, Rachel. It's always, always a pleasure talking to you.
0: One more thing before you go. It should not have to be that you need to be brave. You need to be somewhat fearless. You need to weather the storm of harassment, of ad hominem attacks. In order to just say, this is what happened to me. In order to just say, this is what I witnessed. In order to just say, this is what children came and told me about. And I felt wrong not saying something. I felt wrong not doing what I needed to do to protect them. All of those things should be acceptable. And within a healthy organization, within a healthy system, That is invited. When you're working at a place that does care about how people are being treated, if you go to the boss or the principal, whatever the situation is, and you say, I see that there are kids who are mm, being bullied. I see that there are kids stealing things from other kids. I see their teachers who are mistreating the students or their coworkers who are coming on to other coworkers in a healthy, productive environment that really does care about the individuals there, they will be happy to know that. They'll be happy to know that because it matters to them, because they want to be able to stop it. They want to be able to do something about it, address it, teach people to not do it anymore, and show the people who it's happening to that this is a safe place and a place that cares about their safety. But in an unhealthy organization... It is the truth-teller, the reporter, who is vilified. It is the truth-teller and the reporter who is somehow seen as pathological or up to something. You see it a lot with Sarah. You see it a lot with me. You see it a lot with people who do this work. It's a very interesting thing, and I want you to see it as diagnostic. When any of us come forward and say, this is what happens or this is what is happening. Or in my situation when I was harassed, I wasn't saying anything publicly. I was just being a resource, a counselor to people coming to me. And I was there offering them support when they were telling me their stories about what had happened to them. If the response to that is an all-out war against you. Kind of a um, character assassination of you, then you want to be able to see how suspicious that is. Because if the things that you were accusing them of doing, or the things that you were highlighting or bringing to light that a group was doing, if those things are just met with a character association of you, like somehow killing the messenger, instead, of a group being able to say, none of those things happened, and I can show you proof, if there is no countering of the information with proof of innocence, with being able to show that these things never, ever occurred, nor would they ever, because you're absolutely against it ever occurring, if that doesn't happen, and instead it's more of that kind of childlike, well, yeah, so But Sarah is this (laughs) or Rachel's that. That's when you know they don't have enough evidence to fight what you're saying. They don't have enough evidence to fight what others are saying about what happens there. If the attack is personal, it usually shows that they don't have proof to counter your proof, your information. So notice that in your own lives. If you're bringing something to someone's attention because you feel you've been wronged or someone else has been wronged and they respond by attacking you, which happens a lot in cults. Why is it that you're bringing this to my attention? Are you trying to make waves? Are you someone who's been infected by the devil? Someone who has a an issue where they just need attention and that's why they're bringing this forward. That's when you know they don't actually have a way of fully defending themselves. And instead, because they know that, they're just turning it around and making it that there's something wrong with you that you've brought it up at all. It's reminding me of Sarah talking about how Nishanyanda said that she is just wanting this kind of attention, and that's why she's going public. And meanwhile, as I mentioned when I talked to her, he was pushing people to do hours of videos for him each day, highlighting him as this wonderful guru, as this all-knowing, all, all-powerful being. He was the one needing this attention. He was the one pushing people beyond their capability, beyond the fact that there weren't enough hours in the day to create all of the video and social media content that he wanted, that he's then gonna turn around and say, Sarah uh, is someone who is doing this for attention. He really has the ability to call someone else out for needing attention. And it's not unlike the conversation that you may have heard if you were listening to previous episodes of the podcast from Catherine Oxenberg, when she decided. As part of her effort to free her daughter, India, from Nexium, she started writing a book. And she thought that would be a way to be able to educate people about the fact that this can happen. And she thought also it would be a way to get the media to help her, to get people, the people within government potentially, people within law enforcement offices just the general public reading her book, that she would have their support and that in the course of her helping her daughter, she could also use this as an opportunity to educate the public. And instead, Keith Ranieri painted her as someone who was doing this for attention, even though there was no one more needy of attention at Nexium than Keith Ranieri. Very much mm, akin to what I've talked about before on the podcast where people, for example, who have narcissistic personality disorder will often accuse you of doing the very thing that they are really doing so that you get this feeling like they really care about that. They are going to care about that issue enough to accuse you of doing it. It kind of mm, displaces attention away from them onto you as being someone who is up to something or needy of accolades or just liking the sound of their own voice. There's no one who likes the sound of their own voice more than a cult leader. If you are using your voice to inform people about what happens there, if you are using your voice to exercise your freedom now to be able to use your voice, If you are using your voice to tell the truth and to reveal the truth, there's nothing diagnostic about it. It's a brave move, and it's something that should be supported. And you know a lot, then, diagnostically, about an organization, about a relationship that you might be in. If your truth is given the attention that it should be, or if it's ignored completely, And instead, the arrow is pointed back at you as being the problematic one, as being the squeaky wheel, as being the person who's causing the problems. That's when you know the level of disorder, the level of pathology in a particular group. I praise Sarah and others like her who are willing to walk through the fire in order to educate the public. And I hope she's able to continue for as long as it's necessary to let people know about what's happening in this organization. And hopefully there will be more prevention and people will think twice before following a leader who has done so many of these things to so many people. The more stories that get out there, the more people can do this education and prevention. And I wholeheartedly support it. It was great to talk to Sarah again, and I'll talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at indoctrination podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you, too. So send us an email at show at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.